Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This podcast was recorded in New York in 2008 at the City Winery. A few months ago, I mean, Michael and I have known each other for nearly a couple of years now, but a few months ago we were sitting in Jerusalem and I said, so what's going on? What are you doing? And he said, "Um, I'm opening a winery in Manhattan. And of course, I'm sure like you, my first reaction was, what, another one? And he said, yes, I'm opening a winery in the city. It's going to be called City Winery and going to make wine, make wine for ourselves, make wine for people. In fact, he said, it would be a really good idea if you came and gave a talk just as I'm about to open the winery. And it's a brilliant idea to open any enterprise with words of Torah. So, since we were going to be in New York for this week anyway, he said, why don't you come and give a talk, give a little schmoz, a little class, words of Torah about wine. And since you're going to be here the week before Rosh Hashanah, I want you to talk about wine and Rosh Hashanah. And since I really am interested in Kabbalah to do with wine, could you talk about wine, Rosh Hashanah, and Kabbalah? And could you put them all together? So that's what we're going to talk about for the next short while. And hopefully we can fit it all together because the connections actually are amazing. Wine, as you know, is one of the four holy liquids mentioned in Torah. There are four major liquids that are mentioned in Torah. What are those four? Let's make this interactive. What are the four? Obviously, wine is one. Water. Olive oil. Excellent. Excellent. I didn't actually, not including that as a liquid, but it's it's an emulsion. Very, you know what? I think that's a fifth. That's very good. It's not one of the four, but it's a fifth. Wine, water, milk, and blood. All of these four liquids are connected. But wine, yayin, the Hebrew word is yayin, I'm sure you're all aware of that now, is probably the holiest, most profound of them all for a variety of reasons that we'll look at. In fact, and we're going to get this more on towards the end of what we're talking about, Kabbalistically, yayin, and it's not realized by many people, yayin is actually one of the names of God. The word wine itself is one of the 70 holy names of the word of of the name of God. But Michael then sent me some furious text messages yesterday. And he says, could you talk about harvest seasons? And could you talk about the environment? Interestingly enough, we are on the verge of a major harvest season. In the Jewish agricultural cycle, and the Torah is based on an agricultural cycle, ideally, as Jews, we're not meant to be living in, you know, (laughs) cities and urban environments like this. We're meant to be in the land of Israel, of course. That's another talk. And we are on the land, and we're working the land, and we're sitting under our vine trees. Each man under his person, each family, each woman with their own little plot of land. And the harvest time, there were various harvest times throughout the year. 
It wasn't just one harvest time. There was a harvest time for grain, of course. And that happened more round about what we know, the festival of Shavuot, that happens more like May, June. And there was a big, big harvest time for fruits, and particularly grapes. That harvest time was known as Batsir. It's the name the Torah gives to that harvest time, Batsir. And Batsir happened in the month of Tishrei. The month of Tishrei, of course, is about to start in a week. It's the, calendrically, it's the first month of the Jewish year, in terms of the years that we count. It's late, late summer, just coming into fall, if not already fall, and people go out, and that is why Tishrei, in fact, has the festival of Sukkot, the festival of tabernacles, where people build tabernacles, and in ancient times, when we were on the land, that was incredibly convenient, because rather than schlep home every day, we would actually live for a week or so in the fields, in these tabernacles, while we gathered in all of the fruit harvest, and particularly the grapes. The incredible thing what is, there's huge connections in Hebrew between all sorts of different activities and concepts. The idea of pruning, they had special pruning hooks in biblical times by which they would gather all the grapes, big bunches of grapes off the vine and just ditch them into baskets. That process of pruning the vines is called, is from the root Zain Mem Resh. It's lizamer or lizmor. Whereas in fact, that root is the same as zimra, meaning to sing. So there may indeed have been a deep connection with many, many chants and songs that were developed during harvest times as we were pruning the grapes en masse. We did this as a culture. It wasn't one or two guys. We all did this as a culture. The first thing we did, of course, with the grapes, pretty much as they do now in non- or semi-technological societies, is, of course, throw the grapes in a great big vat, and then it would be pressed with feet, as they do still in many parts of the world, they're pressed with feet. That process is called daish. Daish is the word meaning ladush, to press the grapes with your feet to extract the initial juice. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Daish, the process of Daish produces, as Michael so adequately said, you know, they're contained in some of these vats, and I must say, I've never given a talk in a room that looks like this. When someone said, you're going to give a talk in a winery, I never would have imagined that a room that looks like this, sitting in a room that looks as expensive as this, it's incredible. Some of these vats contain the first process of Daesh. Obviously, Daesh is done mechanically today. But that first juice that's extracted is a unique Hebrew word for it. It's called Tirosh. Tirosh means the initial grape juice that comes out of the grapes. In fact, in Israel today, when you go into supermarkets and you look for grape juice, it will, you know, like caramel, grape juice is called tirosh. It's not fermented, it's just grape juice. It's called tirosh. Tirosh is an anagram of Tishrei. So that, in fact, it was the month of Tishrei that was producing the tirosh.
once we have the tirosh, then of course it was placed in jugs, barrels, all sorts of different containers where the yeasts and so on would allow it to ferment. The very first wine that could be called wine, that tasted something approximating wine, it probably didn't taste very nice, but the first wine that came out was called Yayin Minagat. That is the first wine, just the very first wine that's extracted from the fermenting vats. Really, wine in the ancient world was not drunk, Yayin Minagat, unless absolutely necessary. It was allowed to sit for at least a year. Last year's harvest was known as Yashan. The word Yashan in Hebrew means old. If it was belonged to last year's vintage, it was already called old. And it was considered drinkable for most purposes. Yain, which came from any previous vintage, not last year's, not this year's, not last year's, but anything before that, was called Yashan Noshan. That means very old wine. And that was generally, of course, mixed with water in the ancient world because it had a potency that back then they couldn't handle. Amazingly, those concepts, Daish, the trading of the grapes, Batsir, the gathering of the grapes, are all mentioned together in an incredible verse in the 26th chapter of Leviticus. V'hisig lachem daish et batsir, uvatsir yasig et zara. In other words, when we are set, I'll translate that in a moment. When we are settled on the land and we're doing what we're meant to be doing, and what is it that we're meant to be doing? The purpose of being on the land is to build a society based on justice. That's the whole point of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. If we're not doing that, we're not meant to be there. If we are on the land and we are building a society where we don't oppress one another, where we don't have corruption, where the gap between rich and poor doesn't become too great, where there is basically social justice, then the Pasuk says, means that there will be so many grapes to press that it will come next year's harvest, you'll still be pressing the grapes from last year. And then when you're harvesting, you have so much to harvest that Zara will come, which is the time when you're meant to sow the seeds of the grains for the next year, which happens a couple of months after Tishrei. You won't be able to do that because you'll still be busy harvesting the grapes. There'll be so much abundance. So all of these concepts of the process of making wine are in fact used as the ultimate metaphor for the good times in the Torah itself. Why is wine so special? Why is wine so significant? First of all, you know that wine, you know that yain is considered special because it has its own blessing. When we make a blessing on any other liquid or any other juice from any other fruit, whether it's apple juice, orange juice or whatever, we have a generic blessing for all things. Shehakol varo. All things created with his word, come into being with his word. But wine, the fruit juice of the grape, is Borei Peri Hagafen, who creates the fruit of the vine. Wine is the ultimate symbol for blessing in Jewish spirituality. It is the only fruit that is capable of self-fermentation. It's the only fruit that actually ferments while it is still on the vine. Are you smiling because that's wrong? 
Oh, excellent. Good. Sometimes people look at each other and they smile during all of my talks, and I'm going, you know, there's this like inner panic starts rising. <laughs> my my understanding. Is this great place to learn that wine is capable? It is capable. What what happens is what happens is the 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 natural yeasts and microbes that are responsible for fermentation sit on the skin of the grape. Now, birds and insects come and they break the skin trying to get to the fruit. That then allows the microbes and the yeasts to get into the fruit itself and start fermenting the juice inside it. That is why if you speak to people that work in vineyards, they will tell you that in late summer, bees are dropping to the ground because they are drunk. They have a little bit of this fruit and boom, boom, right? And animals as well know that grapes, unlike any other fruit, can ferment on the vine. So that's the first unique thing about it. But it takes human beings to come to turn wine into something elegant, sophisticated, a drink that's not only the hallmark of civilization and has been the hallmark of civilization throughout the whole of recorded history, but in fact is this incredible symbol and source of blessing. You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more. Wine indeed <laughs> has been at the centre, certainly, of the Jewish world and if not world civilization since the very beginning of recorded time. If we look at the Bible, and just before I talk about the Bible, because the Bible has got many, many instances of wine being central, it's important to understand that there's this other feature of wine. There's another feature of wine, and it's important to understand this before we go into the Bible, because sometimes we can discuss the Bible and people go, well, that's a bit freaky, but wine, as you know, is a double-edged sword. It is a hallmark of civilization. It is a symbol of blessing, but it can also be highly destructive. As you know, as I found out just before this talk, even a couple of glasses of wine can turn, can release inhibition, which is a good thing. I mean, the rabbis in the Talmud tell us that a glass of wine a day will keep you healthy. And in fact, if you take a little bit of wine before learning, it will open up your mind. But they're also careful to tell you that wine can be destructive. Many of the stories in the Bible demonstrate this. The very, very first indication of wine, not on the surface text, but in terms of the history of how the Jewish people have understood the Torah, is in fact right at the beginning. There is a discussion in the Talmud on what exactly was the fruit that was eaten in the Garden of Eden. One of the very strong opinions in the Talmud is that in fact that tree was a vine and that the fruit was a grape. This is amazing because it means that wine was placed in the center or the vine producing wine was placed in the center of the Garden of Eden at the sanctification of the world. This is very, very similar, something I'll talk about in a few minutes, with what we do with wine when we want to sanctify special occasions. So wine was used and, of course, could have been used in a very constructive way 
but instead was used in a destructive way in that episode. But the first really blatant, on-the-surface example of wine is, of course, quite a few generations later, after the flood. Noah, Noah, famously, as you know, family, ark, rain, flood, everyone drowns, ark lands, doors open, out comes Noah and his family, whole clean new world. Noah looks around, all his mates are dead, he's only got his family to have to put up with, so of course he plants a vineyard and he gets drunk. Torah tells you explicitly that he gets drunk and he is rolling around in his tent on the ground, collapsed, comatose, completely off his nut and naked as so often happens to people who plant their own vineyards. He's lying naked in his tent and that leads to a, gr a number of unpleasant consequences for Noah, given that one of his sons comes in and actually abuses him while he's lying there naked. And you can read that story for yourself in the book of Genesis if you're not familiar with it. But the really... So already we've already started to realize that wine is this amazing but potentially dangerous commodity. It has this double-edged sword aspect to it. It can be used for good or it can be used destructively. No more so than in the next instance of wine, which is a few chapters later in the book of Genesis. You're all familiar with the figure of Abraham. Abraham was, in fact, our father, the first Jewish person, and Sarah, the first, these are, these are the first Jewish couple. And at a certain point, some angels, they come to Abraham and they tell him that Sarah is going to give birth at the age of 90 and they have something else they're going to do. They're going to go and they're going to destroy a city called Sodom. They're going to destroy Sodom. Why? Because Sodom is an extremely wicked city. Avraham pleads with them, but it's to no avail. God says, look, even if there were like five righteous guys there, I wouldn't destroy the city. But there aren't. I'm sorry. I'm going to go and destroy it. Thing is, Avraham's got a nephew there. His nephew Lot is living in the city. And they tell Avraham, we're going we're to rescue Lot, and then we're going to destroy the city. The angels go to the city, they're invited in. And they tell Lot, basically, look, a great big thermonuclear blast is about to turn this entire area into limestone. It's a good idea if you come with us because we're going to destroy this city. And Lot's a bit, eh, eh, all right, if you say so, who am I to argue? And he leaves with his wife and his two daughters in a great big hurry. And they run out of Sodom. And they run up into the mountains. And of course, famously, they're told not to look back because you don't want to look at a nuclear blast. And of course, Lot's wife just can't resist. When you tell some people, don't look, they have to look. She looks and zap, she's turned into a pillar of salt. You're all familiar with this. And Lot and his two daughters find their way to a cave. 
those of you who've been to the area of Qumran and, and so on, and the southern part of the Dead Sea will know that the Judean hills very barren, it's desert, but there's lots of caves. They're in one of those caves. And as far as they're concerned, that's it. They're the whole of humanity. They don't know that anyone else has survived this. Looks like God's done another flood thing again. Gone zap and everyone... And so, of course, on the first night, the oldest daughter says to her younger sister, look, we're the only ones left. I think it would be a good idea if we actually had sexual relations with dad so that we could get pregnant and recreate the human species again. And, of course, you can imagine the sister, as you would expect, says, yes, that's a good idea. <laughs> they therefore get Lot drunk with wine. Now, here's the deal. <laughs> Where did this wine come from? What's implied by the Torah is that being told they had three minutes to leave the city because it's going to all go up in smoke, the one thing they take <laughs> is wine. It's the only thing they've got. So although in a sense this is a bizarre story and many people who read the surface of the Bible can't believe that story is in it and some people actually claim that it's, it is pornographic it does tell us something about the importance of wine and even more than that because this story Kabbalistically and mystically in Jewish sources has never been read as some sort of filthy pornographic story. God forbid the Torah should have that there for no reason. But in fact, it's a story of redemption. Who were the two children born of those two unions between Lot and his daughters? Who were they? They were two sons called Ammon and Moav. And Ammon and Moab both have a huge role to play in the redemption of the Jewish people and the redemption of the world. Remember that a descendant of Moab is Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David. So the messianic line actually comes from that union. And that union is affected by wine. That is a very, very deep concept that we're gonna, I'm going to get to deeper in a few minutes. Alright, towards the end, the book of Genesis is full of wine, that's why I'm focusing on the book of Genesis. But later in the book of Genesis, you're all familiar with the story of Joseph. And Joseph is in Egypt, and he's about to reveal himself to his brothers. He wants to, First of all, Joseph is rescued, more or less rescued from prison, but has a deal with someone that he met in prison to come out of prison. I'm not going into the full story of Joseph, because I'm assuming you're probably more or less familiar with it through a guy who is actually the Sarha Mashkin of Pharaoh himself, the wine cupbearer of Pharaoh himself. Once again, wine comes back into the story. Joseph is about to reveal himself to his brothers. He brings them wine because he knows that wine has a tendency to reveal the truth. But mystically, really, wine is the key to redemption. That whole story of Joseph is the beginning, the very beginning of redemption. Why is it the beginning of redemption? Because it's the beginning, and here's the trick, it's the beginning of exile. 
It was Joseph's revelation to his brothers that eventually brought Jacob and the whole family down to Egypt to begin the first great exilic process that the Jewish people need to go through cyclically in order to effect redemption in the world. He gave them wine. Once again, wine, right throughout the Bible, we see wine with sacrifices. If you look carefully, the book of Leviticus, and you read all the different descriptions to do with the different sacrifices that are brought, almost every sacrifice requires wine. Wine is holy. So holy that it was fitting to be brought on the altar of the temple itself. And of course, the great imagery that we see again and again in the Bible, particularly in the prophets, that the people of Israel themselves are compared to a vineyard. That God plants a vineyard. See this in the book of Isaiah, and again in other texts in the prophets, that God plants a vineyard, and that that vineyard is the Jewish people. And that is why he's able to say that, you know, when the Jewish people are not behaving as they should in the world, therefore it's like the vineyard is not being tended and so on. It's a very, very big analogy that we even see right even as much as Song of Songs. Wine is a repeated image throughout the Bible. But beyond the Bible, wine therefore became the essential symbol of sanctification in Jewish life. And you're all aware of this. Obviously, if this was the week before Pesach, and not the week before Rosh Hashanah, my job would be, at least on the surface, a lot easier. Pesach, of course, is the one time of the year where we must have wine. You must have wine. Only, only absolute health reasons can preclude a person from fulfilling the commandment to have four cups of wine at the Passover Seder. Those four cups of wine, once again, are the four terms of redemption used in the Bible itself to describe how the Jewish people come out of Egypt. We say wine for Kiddush, as we always do, to sanctify the day. Remember, when we say Kiddush, we're not sanctifying the wine. We are sanctifying the day through the wine. We say there is the second glass of wine is the wine of redemption. The third is said after the grace after meals. And the fourth is said over Hallel. It's a cup of praise. These four cups of wine are mandatory for all Jewish people at the Passover service. A wedding must have two cups of wine. One on which the actual Kiddushin, the actual sanctification of the marriage itself is said, and the other cup on the Sheva Brachot, on the seven blessings given to the couple. Every chuppah, every wedding canopy, has two cups of wine. There is a cup of wine, of course, at a circumcision. And think about this. What happens at a circumcision? For those of you who've been had the guts to get close enough to have a look, I'm not talking about what happens down there, I'm talking about what happens up here. What do they do? What do they do? They give the baby a little swad of cloth, whatever, dipped in the wine to suck on wine. That means apart from the, the, his mother's milk, wine is the first thing outside of his mother's milk that this baby is ever going to taste in their life. That says something 
about wine. That says something about how fundamental wine is symbolically to the whole way in which Jewish people look at the life cycle. In talking of the life cycle, we talk about circumcision, birth. In the times of the Talmud, we don't do this anymore. In the times of the Talmud, the rabbis enacted that based on a verse that they came across which says that you know if a person is broken in spirit, give them wine. That a mourner returning from burying the dead, when they returned to their house, would be given ten cups of wine. And some actually opinions add another four to that. So there was a period where they were given 14 cups of wine. Can you imagine? <laughs> Today we don't do that. The rabbis, the rabbis looked at the whole concept of whether or not in fact meat and wine should be forbidden since the destruction of the temple. And they realized that that would be too hard and too onerous a burden on the Jewish people to abstain from meat and wine for that long. And of course, where we most see wine in our weekly cycle is of course on Shabbat. Shabbat, we make Kiddush, we sanctify the day in the evening, and we sanctify the day at lunch the next day on Shabbat. Though each of those has a Kiddush, and of course at the end of Shabbat, we make Havdalah, the separate... The Ritual of separation between Shabbat and the weekday on a cup of wine. So wine, once again, is absolutely central to the Jewish life cycle. I want to touch for a moment, since we're talking about wine as central to the Jewish life cycle, on the concept that Michael also touched upon, this idea of the fact that he's making kosher wines. I just want to spend a minute, because most of you are familiar with this, but I just want to go over it, since so we're being comprehensive here. What actually is kosher wine and why do we need kosher wine? We don't need kosher beer. We need kosher wine. Why do we need kosher wine? Non-kosher wine comes under two categories. It's called yain nesach. Now yain nesach is the real thing. It's the real reason we need kosher wine. Yain nesach means wine of libation. In the ancient world, at the times where the foundations of Jewish practice and law were being formulated, wine, as I mentioned, as we know, was central to all religious practices, not just ours. So that wine was used at Dionysian rites, and wine was used at all sorts of idolatrous cults and all sorts of religions, and even beyond the ancient world right up to today, wine has been central to that. Because... Anything used for the purposes of idolatry is utterly forbidden. The rabbis, two, oh, well over 2,000 years ago, instituted this idea that wine that had not been created by Jewish people for the purposes of drinking was probably used for idolatrous purposes. This may seem bizarre to us today, but in fact in the ancient world, most wine, because wine was expensive... Wine was not cheap in the ancient world until certain periods of time. So any wine that was created was generally created for idolatrous purposes. To any one of the great pantheon of the Greek gods or the Roman gods or any of the other gods. So therefore they forbade any wine that wasn't actually supervised by Jewish people for the purposes of consumption by Jews. 
that prohibition held. That's called Yain Nesach. Now, most people today recognize that most wine, your average, you walk into a shop and your average cab sav is not made to pour as a libation to Zeus Olympus. All right? I mean, it might be used for that purpose. I don't know what people get up to in their own homes, but it's probably not. That sort of wine in today's society doesn't really come under the category of Yain Nesach. It's called Stam Yainam. It means that it is just not kosher wine. It's just wine. And many rabbis permit Stam Yainam, but many rabbis prohibit it. Here's the reason. Not, they said, because it's going to be used for an idolatrous libation, but because the drinking of wine leads to associations. It leads to what the rabbis euphemistically called social intercourse. It means that men and women of all sorts of backgrounds will be drinking wine together and associating. If you think that's a good thing, that prohibition seems counter-effective. But if you're the rabbis who want to maintain the integrity of the Jewish people, who are freaked out about the idea of assimilation, who want to see a continuity of the Jewish people, then barring the drinking of wine, it doesn't mean, I mean, you can drink wine with non-Jewish people, it just needs to be kosher wine. <laughs> Why they didn't put that prohibition on other forms of alcoholic beverage is once again in tribute to wine itself. Wine is like no other beverage. It is used for sacramental and social purposes. However, although wine has, been, has had all these prescriptions throughout the Jewish people's spiritual history, I don't think any other profession has been as associated with Jews as wine. This is what's amazing, the tradition that you now stand in. You know, we sometimes think the last, you know, 50 years or so of Jewish history, we sometimes think, yeah, it's always been like that. It's always, it has not always been like this, I'm here to tell you. For most of Jewish history, especially in the Middle Ages, Jews were involved in different industries, as you know, as they are today. In the 20th century, Jews are very famously associated with the garment industry, the diamond industry. For most of Jewish history, for many, many periods, Jews were associated with the production and merchandising of wine. So much so, in fact, <laughs> that there are various... There were various... Um, uh, I don't exactly know what to call them. Uh, I mean, because they weren't really at the level of papal bull, but there were various announcements made by various church authorities which were alarmed throughout the Middle Ages over the fact that Christians themselves were buying their sacramental wines from Jews. You know that Jewish life in the Middle Ages was incredibly difficult. It was incredibly tenuous. We, in fact, for many generations, never had red wine at our Passover seders. The first blood libel in European history 
happened in Norwich in 1144, but like any anti-Semitic idea that comes into the world, it soon becomes very trendy. And other places go, oh, that's a good anti-Semitic idea, why don't we take up that one? So suddenly, after that, you see a whole spate of blood libels. You're all aware of what the blood libel is. It is the accusation that Jewish people find little Christian children just before Passover, and they stab them, and they bleed them, and they use their blood to make matzahs, and they drink their blood with the matzah on Passover, because we're drinking the you know, blood of a Christian child because we're trying to kill their whatever it is. Right? So there would be raids. They would burst into Jewish homes on Passover seders. So that is why the custom arose in the Middle Ages to drink white wine at the seder to definitively dispel any accusation or any suspicion that we were in fact drinking Christian children blood. Those of you who have not been to a Passover Seder, I'm here to tell you that it's not true. It doesn't happen. The most famous wine merchant in the whole of Jewish history, without a doubt, is in fact the most famous commentator on Torah. Of course, I'm talking about Rav Shlomo Yitzhaki, the 11th century, known as Rashi, the 11th century commentator in France. Most historians now believe, contrary to previous historical misconceptions, there was a general picture that Rashi, I mean, you've got to understand who Rashi was, right? Rashi was phenomenal. He came from Troyes in France. He went to the yeshiva of Rabbeinu Gershom, the first yeshiva in Europe in Mainz. He studied at the feet of the disciples of Rabbeinu Gershom himself, the granddaddy of Ashkenazic Jewry. He comes back to France. He sets himself up and starts an entire school of thought that is incredibly impactful on the whole of Jewish learning. He writes a phenomenal commentary on the Torah, which is both simple and deep, and he writes an entire commentary on the whole of the Babylonian Talmud. There is no commentator like Rashi. The general picture of Rashi, his name wasn't Rashi, by the way, he didn't go around, hi, I'm Rashi. Rashi is an anachronym, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, but we know him as Rashi. Rashi. The general picture of Rashi was that Rashi had vineyards, and that he was actually producing wine. And that is why Rashi's commentary is so technical sometimes and has so much detail about viticulture and botany and all the things that have to do with making wine. But in fact, the general understanding of history now, contemporary history, realizes that he probably didn't have his own vineyards. He probably was, as many, many Jews were, a wine merchant. Thing is, he lived in the Champagne district of France. Everybody around him was involved in the production of wine. And Rashi, like many other Jews, would have, because rabbis in those days weren't paid officials of the community, they had their own businesses. The idea that someone, a good nice Jewish boy, would say, what are you going to do? I'm going to become a rabbi, and that's how I'm going to make a living, would have been absurd to anybody until about the 14th century. Rashi, who's living in the 11th century, was probably a wine merchant. So, right throughout Jewish history, wine has been a central concern of Jews. They have grown it. They've, so, I mean, we did grow wine in Talmudic times and in biblical times and in times of the Second Temple. We were growing it. 
without a doubt. But Jews haven't really had the many opportunities to own land and to cultivate the time required to cultivate vineyards properly for quite some time. The diaspora, I'm here to tell you, has not been that kind to the Jewish people. In Christian lands it was horrible, and in Islamic lands, wine was haram, it was forbidden anyway. It wasn't really until the 20th century that Jews can actually get involved once again in owning vineyards. Well, the 19th century with, of course, the purchase by Baron Rothschild of all the vineyards in Israel and the first production of wine by Jews in the land of Israel for something like 1,800 years. It is phenomenal that we come back as a people to our land to grow wine. That is a miracle that happens in our own time. The first bottles of wine were sent back to the rabbis of Europe who looked at these bottles of wine, like the Nazir, the great rabbis of Europe, broke down crying when they saw bottles of wine produced by Jews in the land of Israel. It is an astonishing thing. But I want to come now because I can see I need to get to the point. And I want to touch upon just a couple of Kabbalistic points about wine. I alluded that wine does have a mystical significance. There is a saying, a very famous saying. Some people think it's biblical, but in fact it's a saying, a popular saying that was recorded in the Talmud by the rabbis. The saying is this. Nichnas yayin, when wine enters... When wine goes in, yatsa sod, secrets come out. Rabbis were very excited by this statement for several reasons. One is, it's true. If you want to know something, give them wine and they will tell you eventually. Some people crack after half a bottle, some people crack after two bottles, but eventually they will tell you. But for generations, for thousands of years, we have understood this to mean the deep connection between yayin, between wine, the concept of wine, not just the physical entity, but the concept of wine and sod. Sod doesn't just mean secret. The word sod means the whole mystical, Kabbalistic realm of Jewish spirituality that is only in our generation really coming to the fore. Remember that prior to our generation, Kabbalah was something you did by yourself very quietly and maybe with a few other people. It was a very private... If you were lucky enough to have a teacher or to have access to certain books, it wasn't a public domain conversation as it is now. Everybody knows, everybody familiar with the concept of gematria? Gematria is the idea that every Hebrew letter has a numerical value. Aleph equals one, Bet equals two, Gimel equals three. The numerical value of the word for Yayin is Yud is ten. Yud is 10, Nun is 50, 70, which is very significant. The numerical value of the word for sod, the word sod, meaning deep mystical level, is 70. Very good. Yeah. Samach is 60, Vav is 6, Dalad is 4. So Yain and sod 
actually have the same numerical value. This was already pointed out by the rabbis in the Talmud. That's one of the reasons they got excited by this idea of Nichnas Gayin Yatsasod. What actually, however, in the development of Kabbalistic thought, what is wine? What does it represent Kabbalistically? It's now. Normally, all of us would need to spend a few years studying the preface to what I'm about to say. I have to give it to you in brevitas extremis. So I don't want anybody getting confused. Don't worry if you don't totally understand this. It's just the preface so that I can say what it is I need to say about wine. But you know that Kabbalistically, the world exists and develops and runs according to certain energies. These energies like yin and yang, in a sense, are primarily composed of what we call chesed and din, meaning outpouring and holding back. Chesed is the idea of kindness, of outpouring. Din is the idea of holding back, is the idea of judgment. Think very, very basic analogy. Chesed is, are the green lights Din are the red lights, and you need both of them to make traffic move efficiently. If you own chesed, sounds very nice, but if you only had green lights out there, it would be mayhem. Similarly, if you only had red lights, nothing would move. We know from the Midrash that initially God wanted to make the whole world only according to din, only according to the red lights, but he saw the world could not stand like that. So therefore he intermingled chesed with din. And the balance between chesed and din is what the whole point of what we're trying to arrive at. Now yayin, wine, <coughs> represents din. It represents din. A lot of people think, oh wine, this is a great thing, it's like fantastic, it probably represents chesed. No, wine represents din but it represents a very unique type of din. It represents, it represents din metukan. In other words, blood represents absolute severe judgment, but wine represents sweetened din. It is the din of return. It is what we do with the challenges to us, how we rectify them and then send those energies back to their source which is the whole key to redemption. God has 70 names, which is why Yayin is a big symbol for the names of God. But there's a very, very interesting verse in the Torah, which gives an allusion to the idea. That, that, by the way, this idea that I said about Din, about Din Metukano, Din Matuk, the sweetened Din, which is Din after we've dealt with it and after we've overcome these challenges and turned the challenge of Din into Chesed and back to its source is the reason why when we make Kiddush we hold the wine in a cup in our right hand which represents Chesed if you're right-handed and represents Chesed because all Din must be held in a vessel of Chesed I know that I'm speaking very Kabbalistic, sorry, very Kabbalistically here because ultimately it is the combination of Din and Chesed which brings about redemption Wine is din that has already been through the process of chesed. There is a verse in the Torah 
that you see men, this is what the Zohar is always saying. The Zohar is always saying, people who read the Torah just as simple stories are not getting the point. Every single verse of the Torah is a deep mystery that at different times in Jewish history becomes uncovered. There is a verse in Genesis shortly after the story I was talking about before with Joseph. And Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and then his father and all the family come down. B'shiv'im, and we actually read this in the Haggadah as well, this verse. B'shiv'im nefesh yardu avoteinu mitzrayim. In other words, with 70 souls, our fathers came down to Egypt. When Jacob and the whole family came down to Egypt to join Joseph, they numbered 70. The Zohar tells us that that is a big, big secret. That is the secret of the concept of wine. In order to effect redemption, we must have exile. The whole transformation that happens with the grape is the concept of the transformation that happens to the Jewish people every time they go into exile. And the number of Yayin is 70. 70 is a very, very big number Kabbalistically. It keeps coming back and back and again. If I was to look, if we were to have a talk about the Kabbalistic significance of wine, we would be here at least till five in the morning, sorry, next year. So I'm really just highlighting certain things. It is a huge field, the Kabbalah of wine, because wine is so significant. It keeps coming back again and again and again. But I want to wind up by this, because I want to bring us back to where we started. You know, I mentioned the fact that on Shabbat and festivals, we make Kiddush twice. We make it once in the evening and we make it once in the morning, during the day. Each of those represents two sides of the same story. One represents creation. Friday night represents creation. Zikaron l'ma'aseh bereshit. Over a cup of wine. And the next day represents redemption. Creation and redemption are really the same process. Creation is but the beginning of redemption. And redemption is really but the climax of creation. Each of these is contained in the concept of shamor v'zachor. Preserve and remember. There is a big discussion in the Talmud about when was the world created. Was it created in Nisan, the month that contains Passover, or was it created in Tishrei, the month that contains Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot. The rabbis come down on the side of Tishrei. They come down on the side of Tishrei because Tishrei contains the Batsir, the harvesting of the grapes. You may not think that harvesting sounds very much like a beginning. In fact, it sounds like a climax of a whole agricultural process. But in fact, just as we reap the fields and we harvest the new grapes and we press again a whole new tirosh, therefore we ourselves are renewed and the whole world is renewed. We are, at the end of the day, the same people. 
slapping our butts from year to year. This is not our first Rosh Hashanah, nor, please God, will it be our last. But we are renewed. Because every time we harvest, we realize the recreation of the world that happens every single time. It is one event that you do not forget. And every time you go out to harvest, you say, okay, last year's vintage is last year's vintage. Now I start again, not only in what I'm doing, but myself as a person. And always remember that Rosh Hashanah is really about, I mean, it's about going to hear the shofar in shul, but in fact... It is about an inner transformation. If you're not attempting at least to have some sort of self-awareness, self-reflectiveness and transform your inner self in your relations with other people, then you're not really experiencing what Rosh Hashanah is trying to tell you. And in the concept and in the process and the activity of self-reflection and self-awareness, nothing helps like a good glass of wine. (laughs) Thanks for listening, guys. I'm happy, I'm happy to take questions, but hopefully there won't be too many. But uh, I know that Michael would uh, be happy if I took a couple of questions. You, you didn't mention the Ragalayim. The, the spies who came out with questions. Oh, the Ragalim, of course. The Ragalim. Very, I'll take your question in just one second. This gentleman has raised... Your name is? Joel. Joel has raised an amazing point, of course. In the book of Numbers, of course, when Moses sends the spies into the land, that's a whole other story. Why did he need to send spies? The spies, Yehoshua and Caleb, the two good spies that came back with a good report, came back carrying a pole. You see it. You see the symbol on the Carmel wines, right? This massive thing of grapes. And there are others as well that highlight the absolute importance of wine in, in the Torah. And not only wine in the Torah, but Torah in wine as well. And that's why I'm glad that we had this opportunity to talk together because... In our partaking of wine, we must always remember that all things in the world can be sanctified, well, can be used to sanctify God's name, and especially wine. I also want to add to that one thing. You know what wine is? You know that we have a mystical language apart from Hebrew. Hebrew is the holy language, but many, many Kabbalistic concepts are expressed in Aramaic, which is regarded as a, like a secondary holy language, and it's a mystical language. You know what wine is in Aramaic? Wine in Aramaic is the word chamra. Hamra has the same root because they're both Semitic languages. They both work on the root system and they have the same roots. Hamra is the same root as Hamor. Hamor is a donkey, an ass. Yeah? The connection is interesting because any time you see the reference to the root of donkey, it's immediately messianic. Because the Messiah eventually is to come riding on a donkey... And that's why Homer, material, and that's why the whole concept of materialism is built into the picture of redemption. And therefore, wine is regarded as one of the vehicles that leads to messianic redemption. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. And uh, let's go and have a glass of wine. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.